Our call to worship comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. So now, Israel, give heed to the statutes and ordinances that I am teaching you to observe, so that you may live and enter and occupy the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. You must neither add anything to what I command you, nor take anything away from it, but keep the commandments of your Lord, your God, with which I am charging you. And then we hear from Moses. See, just as the Lord my God has charged me, I now teach you the statutes and ordinances for you to observe in the land that you are to enter and occupy. You must observe them diligently, for this will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this is a great nation and a wise and discerning people. For what other great nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is? whenever we call him. Our opening hymn is not particularly familiar. We have sung it before. Um, It's number 208 in the hymn book. And it's fitted on the screen. Miracles do happen. Pull back the veil on the dawn of creation. If you're able to stand as we sing, please do.
All of our prayers this morning are taken from the Baptist resource gathering for worship with a few little tweaks here and there. So let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, whether we have rushed or taken our time in coming to church, we have come ill-prepared. You have invited us to meet with you. You have created space for time together that will affect all the other moments of the week. You have called us to take time to recall your love and mercy. And yet we've come in heedlessly, as if we were going shopping. We may even have lists in our minds of the things that we want you to sort out. Of feelings and emotions that we want to gain and which will last us without too much effort. We've not prepared ourselves for worship. Stop us now and help us to, as we wonder at the scope of your love. You care for each of us as if you were to care for each one alone. Help us to face you today, to receive what you want to give, and to wonder at your love. And so, knowing ourselves to be loved and accepted by you, that there is nothing we must achieve and no emotion that we should experience, we approach you with confidence and faith. And we pray in the pattern which Jesus gave his followers, each in our own first language and in the form most familiar to us, as we say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
Now, it's not often I tell funny stories in church, uh, but you're going to get two today. It's a very rare day. The story, this is something I read in a women's magazine a long time ago, and I'm told it's true. It may be, it may not. There was a woman around about in her 60s in the supermarket, and she went up to the egg display, and she did, as I would do, she took a box down, she opened the lid, she had a look, and thought, nope, and put it back, and got another one, and did the same. And a young man in his 20s or thereabouts came up and stood, and he copied her, he took down a box of eggs. And then he said, um, what is it we're looking for? He hadn't got a clue why anybody would open a box of eggs and have a look. He thought maybe there was a golden ticket or something in there, a prize. I think he got a bit of a shock when he found out the reason. Can anybody tell me why we check eggs when we go to the supermarket? Freya. Absolutely, Freya, in case any are broken. And we're kind of thinking a little bit as our way in this morning about some of the strange things, well, I think they're a bit strange, that we see written on food. And do we actually know what they're about? So I started off with a picture of the inside of um, an egg box. I didn't bring my eggs with me because I thought I'd probably drop them and break them. So I just brought a photograph of my eggs. But down the bottom here, I don't know if anybody can read this, it says, safety. We remind you of the Department of Health's advice that customers should avoid eating raw eggs or uncooked foods containing raw eggs. Do not use broken or damaged eggs. So you open up your egg box, and there's a whole load of rules in it. Whether we obey those rules or not, that's another matter. But it kind of got me thinking, and it kind of connects to where the grown-ups are going a bit later on, about rules around food. So I wonder if any of the um, small people... It's not my day with this computer, is it? Uh, Would like to come and help me at the front. I've got some things in my bag. Anybody want to come out and see what I've got in my bag? Um, I've got a few bottles, so I'll just pop them out and a few labels. But this is a photograph of part of my label on... What have we got here? Strawberries. Would you like like to see if you can read what it says there? There we go. At home, keep refrigerated, wash before use. That's it. Fine. So, at, at home, keep refrigerated, wash before use. And then it goes on to say, for best flavour, serve at room temperature. So, you've got to keep them in the fridge and have them at room temperature. It's a bit tricky, isn't it? Why do you think you have to wash strawberries? Anybody know? That's right. Do they look dirty to you? It's interesting, isn't it? We go to the supermarket. Mm, They smell nice. And the the strawberries are pretty clean, but we are supposed to wash them. We're supposed to wash all the fruit and veg we buy, aren't we? So I'll put those down there, and maybe Fiona can take those and give them a rinse, because we wouldn't dare give you dirty strawberries. And you can take them out to Sunday school. Is it going to work? Let's have a look. For my next trick, I will just uh, right mouse this. I think this is my punishment for changing to Windows 10. Right, this is part of the back of this. I've got this in my coal box bag because it's supposed to be kept in the fridge. So I've got some water in there to keep it cold. It could be frozen water. I've got a coal block. Actually, what have I got there? Macaroni. Macaroni cheese. Who, who, like me, uses um, the odd instant 
macaroni cheese. Who likes macaroni cheese? Who makes their own macaroni cheese? Okay, well, that's great. But making macaroni cheese for one is not always the most easy thing. Uh, they can see it up there. But Sarah, would you like to see what that says there by that picture of the snowflake? My goodness, what a lot of stuff on that. This was bought from the chilled counter. So this is if you want to freeze it. So I have to freeze it the day I buy it, as soon as I get home from the shop. So I'm not supposed to freeze this one. And if I do freeze it, I've got to consume, eat it within one month. And if it's defrosted, I've got to eat it the day it defrosts. I can't, that's a lot of rules, isn't it? And why do you think they've got all those rules on the, on the macaroni cheese? You don't know. That's very honest. It's a heck of a lot of rules. It's all supposed to be just in case it gives us a sore tummy because it's not quite right. Let's just see. If... So that's the instructions for cooking it. Who else can read? Aidan, you, would you like to read one for me? If I can find where it says it. It's on the side. Can you see what that one says? Microwave can be chilled but can also be oven cooked. Yep, and what else does it say? At the bottom. Do not... After cooking. Yeah, after cooking. After cooking, check food is piping hot. Piping hot, yeah. So what is piping hot? Does that mean you get a bagpipe around to your house to, to say it's okay to eat it? No. Who knows what piping hot means on food? Okay, what's it mean? Like really, really hot. Really hot, so you have to go and blow on it. That's right. And why do you think they want it to be piping hot? Because do you think it might sort of burn our mouths? What do you think? So it's not undercooked. That's right. So it's not undercooked and it might hurt us. So we have all these rules about food. Thank you for, for helping me with that. This is going to be a very interesting morning. So thank you. You've got to go and sit down now. That's brilliant. So all these rules about food, and sometimes we understand why they work. Sometimes we don't understand why they're there. And it's good sometimes just to stop and think about, well, well, what are these rules? Do we just follow them because we've always followed them? Or do we ignore them because we've always ignored them? Now, it's cheesy, cheesy song time because we have to have a cheesy song now and then. And this one is adapted from a song by Donald Hilton, who originally wrote it as a harvest hymn for, for an urban context. So find a, a trolley, push it straight down the supermarket rows. I think you'll know the tune. Thanks, Paul.
we listen for the word of God, firstly from Psalm 15, what God requires. Lord, who may enter your temple? Who may worship on Zion, your sacred hill? Those who obey God in everything and always do what is right, whose words are true and sincere, and who do not slander others. They do no wrong to their friends, nor spread rumours about their neighbours. They despise those whom God rejects, but honour those who obey the Lord. They always do what they promise, no matter how much it may cost. They make loans without charging interest and cannot be bribed to testify against the innocent. Whoever does these things will always be secure. And then from Mark's Gospel, the teaching of the ancestors and the things that make a person unclean. Some Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples were eating their food with hands that were ritually unclean. That is, they had not washed them in the way the Pharisees said people should. For the Pharisees, as well as the rest of the Jews, follow the teaching they receive from their ancestors. They do not eat unless they wash their hands in the proper way nor do they eat anything that comes from the market unless they wash it first. And they follow many of the rules which they have received, such as the proper way to wash cups, pots, copper bowls and beds. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why is it that your disciples do not follow the teaching handed down by our ancestors, but instead eat with ritually unclean hands? Jesus answered them, How right Isaiah was when he prophesied about you. You are hypocrites. Just as he wrote, These people, says God, honour me with their words, but their heart is really far from me. It is no use for them to worship me, because they teach human rules as though they were God's laws. You put aside God's command and obey human teachings. And Jesus continued, You have a clever way of rejecting God's law in order to uphold your own teaching. For Moses commanded, Respect your father and your mother, and whoever curses his father or his mother is to be put to death. But you teach that if a person has something he could use to help his father or mother, but says, This is Korban, which means it belongs to God. He is excused from helping his father or mother. In this way, the teaching you pass on to others cancels out the word of God. And there are many other things like this that you do. Then Jesus called the crowd to him once more and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing that goes into a person from the outside which can make him ritually unclean. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that makes him unclean. When he left the crowd and went into the house, his disciples asked him to explain this, saying, You are no more intelligent than the others, Jesus said to them. Don't you understand? Nothing that goes into a person from the outside 
can really make him unclean because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and then goes on out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared that all foods are fit to be eaten. And he went on to say, It is what comes out of a person that makes him unclean. For from the inside, from a person's heart, come the evil ideas which lead him to do immoral things, to rob, kill, commit adultery, be greedy, and do all sorts of evil things. Deceit, indecency, jealousy, slander, pride and folly. All these evil things come from inside the person and make him unclean. So, as I've mentioned, I don't normally tell jokes or funny stories in church, but you've had one, and here's another. I heard this one this week when I was up at the Board of Ministry. I've tweaked it slightly because I wasn't convinced with the cut of meat they were using, but there we go. There was a newly married couple, and they decided they were going to have a roast chicken for their dinner. The wife was cooking, and she very carefully got out the chicken, and she washed it, and she put in the stuffing... And she chopped off the legs and threw them in the bin before she put the chicken in the roasting tin and popped it in the oven. Why did you do that? asked the husband. Perfectly good to me that you've just thrown away there. Well, I learned it from my mother and that's what she always did. So um, next time we visit her, maybe you can ask her. So a few weeks later, they were at the mother-in-law's house and he asked the question. Well, she said, my mother taught me to cook, and that's what she did, so you better ask her. And a few weeks later, they were visiting Granny, and they said to her, why would you cut the legs off the chicken and throw them away and then cook the rest? And she looked at them with that old-fashioned look that only your Granny can give you, and she said, well... It wouldn't fit in the oven if I didn't cut the legs off. Okay, it's not the greatest of jokes. And I'm not very good at telling jokes, but you know, bear with me. Ritual practices are part of everybody's life. Whether it's where we put the keys when we come into the house, whether it's who sits in which chair, 
whether it's the customs we have that make Christmas into Christmas for us, or even which way round you hang the loo roll. Usually, we don't think about them, they just are. And for the most part, that's absolutely fine, but maybe not always, as our Bible passage this morning illustrates. A really key part of the reading from Mark's Gospel that we heard this morning is actually in the printed version in English in parentheses. It's an explanation to readers unfamiliar with Jewish cleanliness rituals or their extent. How accurate the writer's assertion is that all the Jews did this isn't certain. Some of the commentators say actually in Jesus' time it would have been the priests who complied with the the detailed cleanliness codes and maybe the Pharisees and the scribes. It would be a lot longer before this spread to the whole of Judaism. But even so, these were Jewish ritual cleanliness practices and three are identified. Washing of hands, washing of food brought in from the market and washing of cooking pots. And superficially at least, all of these make good sense. But somehow or other, they've gone on to acquire surprising significance. And if we're going to make any sense of what goes on here, we have to think about the cultural context in which the practices first emerged and then their sort of passage through time. In the ancient world, power and authority lay almost exclusively with the religious officials. Their remit extended way beyond the overtly spiritual or worship-related aspects of life. Among other responsibilities, it was they who judged disputes between individuals, they who advised on health matters. There was no sacred secular divide. Had I been an ancient Jewish priest, you'd have come and shown me your verrucas, And I'd have told you about washing your veg. That's the way it was. So they were responsible for identifying and implementing rules that would keep people safe and well. Experience would show them the dangers of eating poorly cooked food or using dirty pots in which the bacteria-ridden remains of a past meal lurked. The connection between hygiene and health would be readily observable And so practical rules for healthy living would emerge and were often framed in religious language. By the time these oral laws got to be written down, they sat alongside lists of special festivals, rituals for sacrifices, guidelines on the settlement of dispute, and they gained religious significance. Practical, common-sense rules found their way into the Torah, becoming divine law, and thereafter into the formal traditions that emerged within Judaism. And these very earnest teachers and scholars would spend their time and their energy trying to work out, well, what does it mean to translate these rules into real life? By the first century, any recognition of the practical origin of these practices seems to have been lost. And the rituals have become a means of identifying who was in and who was out. Washing the fruits and veg that you bought at the market wasn't about removing dirt or creepy crawlies. 
but it had evolved into a kind of ritualized sprinkling to undo the taint that might arise because somebody unclean had touched it before you did. And then there was this outside possibility that the seed might have been planted on the Sabbath rather than in the week. Or it might have been in a field of mixed crops and you didn't know about it. And perhaps the grower hadn't made the right tithe. So who knew what invisible taint you might get if you bought this food and didn't clean it ritually? Sensible food hygiene had mutated into a kind of religious hygiene. Rather than keeping the eater safe from harm, the rules were a means of defining which foods and which utensils were kosher, as we now know it, and those which were not. And therefore, by default, who was in and who was out, what was in and what was out. It's a very long way from our culture, isn't it? I've just realised I need to put my macaroni cheese back in the cold bag, otherwise you'll all be telling me off if I eat it, because you know it might have got warmed up. I'm sure if I cook it until it's uh, piping hot, it'll be fine, but you know, just to be on the safe side, a bit of ritual hygiene going on here. We go to well-lit shops, don't we? Carefully temperature-controlled refrigerated units are filled with hygienically packaged foods, all of which seem to have labels telling us to wash before use, ensure it's piping hot before eating, and above all, do not exceed the use-by date. Hmm. We're told how many calories there are in a standard amount of ice cream or baked beans. We're advised to eat five portions of fruit and vegetables. And because nowadays there is such incredible widespread ignorance of basic food hygiene, people are lobbying the government, Scottish and UK, to label chickens to tell us that if we don't cook them properly, they might make us ill. And so we take our already clean food home, and then, well, I don't know what you're like, maybe you do have your rituals for putting it away, or maybe you don't. We put it away, we cook it, we eat it. Or we throw it away because it's gone past its sell-by date. But for us, there is no equivalent to kosher or halal. We don't have a parallel to the religious hygiene that is expressed by those rules for those communities. Understanding context is really, really important. It allows us to appreciate that the concerns of the religious officials about Jesus and his followers failing to wash their dusty hands and munching bread of unknown providence had nothing to do with the risk of them getting food poisoning and everything to do with disdain for their culture. The religious authorities were shocked and they were horrified that Jesus didn't get his own cultural rules in this particular area of hygiene. When I came to reflect on the passage, it seemed to me that there were two directions that I could go in, well, probably more than two, but two that I did go in, relating to this kind of working title of ritual hypocrisy and reflecting the artificial, sacred, secular divide that does arise in societies like ours, where regulation is devolved to the state and faith communities are often passive observers of the rules unless or until they don't like what the state does. 
And first, I think there's a kind of everyday hypocrisy. This struck me as I reflected on the ritual washing of food purchased at the market. Might it be, and I think sometimes it is, that as we go around the supermarket and as we select the food we will take home and then when we get home and we prepare it, we worry about the wrong things. Our concerns are misplaced. Are we more worried about the need to wash the fruit than we are about where it comes from? about the conditions in which the growers work and the packers and how much they're paid. Is it our priority to get a bottle of milk which has the latest use-by date or the lowest price? Or do we actually consciously choose a brand or a retailer who will pay as a minimum the full gate price to the supplier? And do we slide into an easy ritual of buying the same things all the time without even thinking about the impact of our choices? It's really easy, isn't it, to feel a little bit smug and self-satisfied because we choose fair trade coffee and dolphin-friendly tuna and ecologically sound cleaning products. And then we don't give a thought for the carbon footprint involved in uh, transporting these food or the food miles that are involved. It's not easy. There aren't any absolute answers. I can't tell you how to do that balancing act. But it's just really easy to be unthinking and just buy what we always buy, or go for the best bargain because that's what we want, or or get the thing with the longest date, or whatever it is, and not think about who the people are behind the products. And of course, it's not just about food shopping. This potential for a discontinuity with the values that we claim to have and the choices we make is there in every part of our lives. When we come in to fill out out our tax return and you've got those boxes where you can offset things or which pension plan we choose to sign up with, how we spend our leisure time, which career choices we make, who we bank with, what kind of transport we choose and so on and so forth. There aren't any easy answers, and we won't all reach the same conclusions. But I do think in order to minimise our own unthinking, everyday hypocrisy, we need to keep asking ourselves those kind of questions. Over the summer, our managers have been working on an ethical policy for the church, and we're going to be bringing that to the September church meeting for discussion. It's been a really interesting job. I actually took on the role of drafting that. Fascinating to go away and do that. But it aims to reflect the values to which we aspire and recognise the need to translate into action the ideals we name, not just as individuals, but as a church community. And part of our motivation to do that is so that we can actually hold ourselves accountable. We can say, these are the values that we as a church think are important Are we just sliding unthinkingly into some kind of hypocrisy where we claim one thing and do another? We need to somehow hold together what we do on a Sunday with our attitudes beyond as a group as well as individuals. 
And then there's the spiritual hypocrisy of which the religious authorities were accused by Jesus. Outwardly, everything they said and did ticked the boxes of orthodoxy. But it was a misplaced orthodoxy. It led them to see right ritual as justification for excluding other people, a means to avoid perceived contamination. If you don't complete the ritual ablutions, if you don't kosher your food and your kitchen, then you can't be part of us. Or, in the reverse, if I eat your unclean food prepared in your unclean kitchen with your dirty hands, then I become unclean myself. Now, please be clear, I'm not denigrating the honestly held views of practicing Jews. What I'm doing is noting a hypocrisy that Jesus saw in his questioners and which might just as easily and reasonably be asked to the Christian church. It's not that the rituals were wrong per se. It was the hiding behind them, being concerned with the ritual rather than its real intent that's the problem. And when we try to look for examples of Christian hypocrisy, sometimes it's really easy. There are groups of people we know that the church has treated shamefully. We know that they're historical practices of the church that make us cringe. And we do our best to redress these injustices, to confess the failings locally or historically, and to welcome those we once excluded. And that's great. It is great. But it's not the whole story. It's far less easy to find or root out small-scale hypocrisy. The things behind which we individually or collectively hide, because actually, like those Pharisees, we're afraid. Not necessarily afraid of being tainted, and not necessarily being afraid of being associated with the wrong kind of people, although it could be those. But perhaps we're afraid that our faith will be challenged or changed if we take the time to reflect on complex or controversial topics. And there are plenty of those in the news at the moment. Perhaps we are afraid that our cherished traditions will be lost in favour of something new, especially technology that doesn't work. Perhaps we're afraid that we'll no longer feel so at ease if we don't do things the way we always did them. I wonder if we have our own equivalent of the sprinkling the shopping with water to symbolically wash off the taint of the world. I wonder if we have a desire somehow or other to make more holy or more spiritual the everyday things we bring to worship, whether it's the architecture or the words. Do we hold fast to rituals we don't even understand anymore? We don't remember why we started them. And actually, they could be a hindrance. Well, my time's up. But perhaps we can't end without taking a moment to recall the crux of what Jesus taught here. At the end of the day, what matters isn't ritual orthodoxy. It isn't about outwardly doing the right thing. It's about the inside, what's going on inside of us. One of the commentators I read noted that the list of vices Jesus identifies 
It's clearly based on the Ten Commandments. Go and look at it. It's right. Disdain for parents, dishonesty, sexual licentiousness, stealing, murder, envy, greed. These are the things that Jesus is concerned about. So rather than beating ourselves up over the fact that sometimes we buy the wrong brand of coffee, or that the bank with which we, we use might have an investment policy which on closer examination is a little bit disturbing, or whatever else it might be, perhaps we could actually come back to the heart of what it means to live as followers of Jesus and think about our hearts. It isn't for nothing that the Gospels record Jesus as saying that the law and the prophets are summarized in the ancient Shema prayer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Something we come back to time and time again. But with love as a guiding principle, the potential to reduce all kinds of hypocrisy is is increased. And we are freed to be the people that God calls us to be. Probably makes sense to check your eggs and not have your food not properly cooked. But what matters most is what comes from inside. Our attitudes to each other and to others. We're going to sing again, and it's number 528 in the hymn book. Good reliability engineer that I am. I'm really glad that we hand out hymn books as uh, give us a bit of diversity from technology. 528, freedom and life at ours, for Christ has set us free. Please stand if you can as we sing.
There is a response to our prayers this morning. When I say the words, your kingdom come, O Lord, would you join me in saying, your will be done? So I will say, your kingdom come, O Lord, and we say together, your will be done. Let's pray together. Gracious God, rejoicing in your blessings, trusting in your loving care for all, we bring you our prayers for the world. We pray for the created world, for those who rebuild where things have been destroyed, for those who fight hunger, poverty and disease. For those who have the power to bring change for the better and to renew hope. In the life of our world, your kingdom come, O Lord, your will be done. We pray for our country for those in leadership who frame the laws and shape our common life, who keep the peace and administer justice, for those who teach and those who heal, for all who serve the community. In the life of our land, your kingdom come, O Lord. Your will be done. We pray for people in need, those for whom life is a bitter struggle, those whose lives are clouded by death or loss, by pain or disability, by discouragement or fear by shame or rejection. In the lives of those in need, your kingdom come, O Lord. Your will be done. We pray for those in the circle of friendship and love around us. Children and parents, Sisters and brothers, friends and neighbours, and for those who are especially in our thoughts today. In the life of those we love, your kingdom come, O Lord. Your will be done. We pray for the church in its stand with the poor, in its love for the outcast and the ashamed, in its service to the sick and the neglected, in its proclamation of the gospel in this land and in this place. In the life of your church, your kingdom come, O Lord. Your will be done. Eternal God, 
Hear these our prayers, spoken and silent, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all praise and glory forever. Amen. Generous God, we say as we always say that the good things we have have their origin in you and that the gifts we return are really already your own and yet you entrust them to us to decide how we will spend this money. So help us to do so wisely in a way that includes rather than excludes and in a way that expresses the values of your kingdom. For we offer them in the name of Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn is one that expresses that challenge of trying to hold together our faith and our daily living. Number 608. Lord, as we rise to leave this shell of worship called the risk of unprotected living, willing to be at one with all your people, We ask for courage.
Go forth into the world in peace. Be of good courage. Hold fast to what is good. Render to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the afflicted. Honour all people. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit, now and always. 